Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. I got back uh, late last night from White Clay, and it was kind of exciting um, day. Uh, so we've been uh, trying to get uh, uh, get open up there, and number of volunteers have gone up and helped. So now we're going to be officially open three days a week. Um, and uh, we had a little kind of an open house on Saturday. And one of the cool things was uh, there was a couple uh, that lived in White Clay um, that kind of introduced me to to a lot of the work up there. And they lived in White Clay. And they basically did what I call street triage uh, when there was so much going on up there, whether, you know, I'd be up there with them and we'd go into some of these abandoned houses and pull people out of their feces and take them and treat their wounds. You know, they were bleeding, just crazy stuff. And so this couple lived up there and did ministry for years and because of her birthday, uh, she came back this last week, and she, they had, her, her mom had donated, and her family had donated just nine huge boxes of sewing material and sewing machines. And her being there, she, she, it just brought her to tears, uh, just to see what God's done in terms of the impact in white clay. So please continue to pray for us up there. Uh, the other thing is really is just we're just trusting God. I spent the last. Two years training this uh, uh, woman, Candy Red Cloud, uh, to run uh, the makerspace there. And uh, so as of May 11th, she, she hasn't been able to walk. She has brain cancer. She has surgery uh, on June 11th. Um, and so we'll just see God's at work. I prayed with her. And so please continue to, to pray with her. All right. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we can go to the, maybe the first, first slide. Um, we're going to go back to uh, Jeremiah 29. Uh, Jeremiah 29 um, and uh, Jeremiah's role as a prophet in just a really fascinating time uh, for uh, Judah and Israel. Um, and kind of it's built out of just kind of like what is going on in our culture, what is going on in our country. Um, one of the things I do, and I, you know, Probably many of you have no idea what I do. Uh, but one of the things I do is I go, um, I, I work with a lot of religious ministries and churches uh, across the country. Um, and one of the things that I, I've really spent the last several years doing is helping them uh, work through their challenges to their religious freedoms and uh, advising them on that. And so um, sometimes when I'm gone, that's what I'm doing. If we go to the next slide, as we look at culture, you know, it just reminds me of this Buffalo Springfield song uh, from 1960, right, the 1960s, right? Remember Buffalo Springfield? Stephen Stills sings this song. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down, Right? Like, what is going on in our culture? And I, you know, I was nine years old in 1968. Uh, so many, um, many of you, some of you, uh, experienced the uh, 60s differently, right? I was a, just a boy, but I remember day Martin Luther King uh, was shot. Um, my dad talking about it. I remember going over to... Uh, uh, we we were living in rural uh, southern Colorado there for a while, and uh, went and to the neighbors who had a TV and watched Robert Kennedy's funeral. But there's something going on, right? Everybody, look what's going down, right? There's real issues in our culture, and a lot of debate is taking place in the culture, and that filters down to us. It filters down to courts and legislators in our communities, and much of it doesn't sound good toward people of faith. All right. The next slide. Um, but there's a challenge to be faithful in this season. And it is a season, right? Like, God is present. He has a rhythm to the world. A history ahead of us. 
We're in seasons, right? We're moving into an arena that's a more, that into arena that are more negative for Christians in the church. Yet we continue to hear some encouraging words of God's truth shining through and changing lives. From my work, we hear some encouraging things yet, even in the courts. We're called to be faithful. As persons of faith, there is a way to be faithful. This world is not our home. This world is against us. Christ Jesus told us that, and to expect this from culture. In John 15, Christ speaks. Actually, let me give you a little context. He's speaking to his disciples and getting them prepared uh, for what is to come. He's sending them out into the world. And he tells them, they're going to hate you, right? They're going to hate you, message. They're going to hate you because of me. He says, in chapter, in, actually in chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not feel guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. So, that's, Jesus knew that is, is going to be the view of the world toward us as believers. This country is not where we ultimately belong or call our home. The hatred of the world to the person and work of Jesus Christ has been massed to us because of the Judeo-Christian foundations and beginnings of our nation. It's just been hidden from us, the hatred the world has toward us meaning us because of Jesus, right? So, as persons of faith, there is a way to be faithful, right? It it feels like we've kind of reached a tipping point in our country, right? We seem to have reached this point where, like, like usually after every election, right, there is a direction shift, right? Like, new president comes in, all his people come in, right? They've got their own policy agendas, and just there's this shift that goes back and forth. But we appear to be changing sharply, right? There's a sharp change politically and culturally. Society has been changing. There's now an undoing of things, a new path going forward, undoing foundational principles and thoughts about our country. It's a more progressive direction. Maybe parts of our system are wrong. I mean, there are parts of our system that are wrong. And we need to do some things better. There are lessons ahead of us as we go in this direction. But the call is, how do we do this as Christ followers? The next slide shows four trends um, that um, I see as it comes to particularly religious freedoms and believers. The first one is a rapid decline in the impact of religion and Christianity. People see Christians, ideas, their influence, and now think that it's a negative thing in our society. People in political campaigns think there's political benefit to speaking out against Christians. There's a rising role of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, secularists, atheists. So many don't know someone who goes to church. For many politicians in political arenas, right, there's still support for Christians. But, but politics is now supporting subordinating Christianity to the tribe rather than Christianity sitting in a moral compass right moral judgment over what's going on in politics now politicians are grabbing Christianity as supporting their position regardless of where their position is coming from they're looking at Christian symbols to support their agenda and that's a problem there's a suspicion of the church and faith based organizations The second is that there is a tarnished view of religious freedom. Religious freedom is now seen as a tool for religious bigotry against women, LGBTQ rights, 
Right? And there's a very strong influence of this in Congress. Christians are portrayed as using their religious freedoms as a sword to eliminate the rights of others. If it's used against homosexuals, then it is kicking them out into the streets, hating them. This leads to a suspicion of religious freedom in those who want to pursue faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Now people are thinking about religious and protections and freedoms as a bad thing. They see Christians and faith-based organizations as standing in the way of progress and rights. Thirdly, there's a view that prior systems have not worked. Right? People think uh, the systems to equality and protections have not worked, particularly when everything is th- seen through a racial lens. Sometimes discussions of prior events or efforts are presented in a way that you think, uh, that's not how I remember it working in history. Right? Fourthly, more government action is seen as the answer. The solution is seen as more federal role in addressing issues. Big spending acts, right? Like more activism. Say we need more government action. Okay, I just came from the Pine Ridge Reservation. If you want to see government really in action, anyway, it's, it's, it's just hard, right? And as, as more government action is seen as the answer, then faith-based organizations doing ministry are squeezed out of the equation. Right? <laughs> what do we do? How do we live in this culture? I think Jeremiah 29 brings us some answers. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. His letter said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles, right? Like, it was like likely written on, you know, papyrus, right? And rolled into a scroll. Jeremiah sends a, this letter to those who were exiled into Babylon in 597 B.C. These included the skilled workers and the artisans. I mean, Daniel was among this crew. There were the leaders. There was the queen mother, the king. These represent a a class of people positioned well in society. They were leaders both politically and economically. And removing them from a conquered location was a practice by multiple kings. It, It it weakens the possibility of Judah, in this case, gaining independence or rebelling. 
Now, the Assyrian Empire had been a world force, right? Judah was essentially a vassal of the Assyrian Empire during Manasseh's reign as king of Judah. As the Assyrian Empire began to fall, it created a vacuum, right? Um, and Judah Israel asserts its independence. King Josiah's time of reign comes during, falls in this period, and religious reforms happen in Judah, right? Beginning around 638 BC. Right? Remember Josiah? He becomes king when he's eight years old, right? uh, according to Second Chronicles 34. And as they're restoring the temple under these religious reforms, they discover written scrolls containing the law. And when it was read, King Josiah tore his clothes and brought the nation to repentance. Right? This is six, you know, post-638 B.C. Jeremiah is called to be a prophet somewhere around 626 B.C., during King Josiah's reign. Josiah reigns almost 30 years until 609 B.C. But Babylon begins building its empire and defeating the major cities of the Assyrian Empire. Right? Nineveh was its capital. Right? Hassan was defeated uh, by uh, Babylon. And something interesting happens in this time. The Egyptians, right, the Egyptians want the Assyrians to continue to rule. Right? So the Egyptians begin to align themselves with the Assyrians against Babylon. So they try to help the Assyrians uh, against the Babylonians, and the Egyptians march through Israel to battle at Mesopotamia. King Josiah takes his army out to intercept e the Egypt um, at Megiddo, and King Josiah is killed. The brief time of Judah's independence, growth, and spiritual reform during King Josiah comes to an end in 609 B.C. The Egyptian pharaoh Necho eventually installs Jehoiakim as king of Judah and as a puppet king to Egypt. Within four years, Nebuchadnezzar comes into the region, right, 605 B.C., defeats the Egyptians, and establishes rule over Judah and Israel. King Jehoiakim struggles as he switches his loyalty back and forth between Babylon and Egypt for, from, from 609 to 590, about 12 years, right? When Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon in 598, Nebuchadnezzar right, comes against him in full force, ravages the land of Judah, and lays siege to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim suddenly dies, and Jehoiachin becomes king for three months. Nebuchadnezzar gets Jerusalem to surrender, and this is when he takes the king, the queen, mother, the skilled workers and artisans, right, the leaders, uh, into exile in Babylon, hauls them off in 597 B.C. He puts Zedekiah in place as king over Judah. Right, this is the context in which Jeremiah is writing. Zedekiah, right, for some crazy reason, decides to align Judah with Egypt, again against the Babylonians, and withholds tribute, right, the payments that he owed to Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah warns him not to do this, right, like, it's a dumb thing to do, basically, Jeremiah says, right? And the result for Jeremiah, he gets imprisoned. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, again, beginning in 588 B.C. The city wall is eventually breached in 586 B.C. But before that, Jeremiah writes his letter. Right? So, before Babylon takes over right, for Judah, totally, and ravages the city walls, right, tears down the Jerusalem, Jeremiah is writing. Jeremiah was thrown in these tumultuous times and events, prophesying right, the downfall of Jerusalem because of the Israelites' sin. Jeremiah lived in a war zone. Right? They're under siege in Jerusalem. He's there when the Babylonians come and take on the Egyptians. He was a prisoner. He witnesses the fulfillment of his prophecies in real time and in unusual ways. He is God's voice during all of this. 
his letter to the exile. In verse 2 of 29, Jehoiakim was taken into exile, right, with the queen mother, right, with the court officials, leaders of Judah. And this included Daniel. Exile. Exile means you're forced to live in a country or place that is not where you belong. You are not a citizen of the place where you live. Verse 3. His letter to the exiles is to be delivered by Elisa, Gemariah. They take it from Jerusalem to Babylon, right, while Zedekiah is king of Judah. And the message of the letter begins in verse 4, right? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's basically two groups of God's people, right? Those who were in Babylon and those still in Jerusalem. The ones in Jerusalem were anxious, right? They're under siege, expecting to be run over and wanting to escape. The ones in Babylon were looking to resist living under Babylon's rule. Maybe stir up resistance or escape. To these people, Jeremiah brings God's word in Jeremiah 29. Verse 5. Build houses and settle down. He doesn't say, like, escape, God wants you back in your country. He doesn't say, like, hide. Like, he doesn't say resist. He doesn't say, you know, rebel. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Verse 6, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we have to remember that we too are living in exile. Right? Like, I'm a follower of Jesus living in exile. That's my identity. This earth is not my home. This country is not our true home. We are exiles. We too have to live in the balance of God has us here now in a place that hates us. How do we act? How do we live? We look to seek the welfare of this city, this state, this country. Seek its peace and prosperity. We must find a way to frame our conduct and our actions in this season of political extremism. As Jeremiah, as God instructed the exiles. But do it knowing that we are true citizens of another place. Our hope is not in this country or even in this world. Our hope is in the life of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. Verses 8 and 9. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. There are people saying, that were saying that they understand what God is planning, that God doesn't want judgment for them, that they are going to return quickly, or maybe they should rebel and escape to Babylon, and escape Babylon. Jeremiah says they're prophesying lies. In verses 16 and following, right, Jeremiah describes how judgment is still coming to those in Jerusalem. And the judgment is so clear from Jeremiah's mouth that it's because of the rebellion against God and sinful nature and disobedience and not living out the purposes and promises that God gave them. Right? It seems that he says this, 
that because he's going to let those in exile to think that the answer is to escape back to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is going down too. Uh, let, me, let me kind of, well, I'm going to walk through, through some thoughts about what this means for us. Right? And just to kind of warn you, um, just kind of like each of these points could be a sermon in itself. So like, I just, I had to delete a bunch of stuff, okay? So each one could be a sermon in itself. First off, like we need to embrace the identity of an exile. Right? As a chorus says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angel beckoned me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. But while Jeremiah writes to those in exile, he makes it clear that God wanted his people to embrace living a meaningful life where they were. While my true citizenship, while our true citizenship may be somewhere else, I need to live as a good citizen here now. Secondly is, Jeremiah sent a message from God to the exiles. The very fact that a message was sent to them under an express divine appointment was a consolation and source of strength. It focused them on truth from God. Wherever God's children are scattered, the word from the Lord and a written word is to them a source of permanent encouragement and direction. God looks after his afflicted servants. And he looks after us, not only with his provident care, but with his divine words. Instructions to us. We need to share that message. The challenges of our time should drive us more to God's word. We need to be biblicists. Thirdly, pray. Right? Jeremiah 29, 7. He says, pray to the Lord for it. Right? For the city where you're living, where you're in exile. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray. Right? It's, it's the same word that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that request... Prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. Why do we pray? Because if it prospers, you too prosper, Jeremiah says. What does Paul say? He narrows it. He says, pray that you may live a peaceful and quiet life. You know what the ultimate result of that would be? This is good. Pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. So we should pray, right, for our city to prosper, that we'll live in peace so that the gospel can be shared. Right? Fourthly, God promises the stability and security of his people and their social and domestic interest. So even though they're experiencing God's judgment and are living in exile, they are told to seek the peace and prosperity of the city they are sent to exile. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, there's a number of aspects of seeking the prosperity of the city that challenges. One is, like, we disagree with 
things of country's leadership is doing. Right? Like, there was a, a large group that disagreed what was going on, right, the last four years, right? Now there's a large group that disagree with what's going on now, right? Like, that's the nature, right? Uh, I told myself I won't go to the unity sermon. I'll save that. Like, we disagree with things our, our country's leadership is doing. The direction that culture is taking our country, right? But, but understand, like, and, and I repeatedly say this, law is downstream from culture. What Congress is doing, what the state legislator is doing, what the county or even the city are doing, is downstream from culture. And what that means is the people that were just elected to go to Washington or wherever, right, they're citizens. They live in a culture. They went to universities and wherever, right? Like, so they take that mindset and ideas and go make laws. So law is a result of those people decisions, right? The Constitution is another, right, situation, but that's, you know, that's uh, decided, you know, Constitution is protected by judges, right, justices, and, uh, you know, just, and those justices mostly were lawyers, and they mostly went to law schools like I did, and uh, I will tell you that coming out of law school in 1992, I know where the law is going, right? Like a, uh, a uh, he was a, third, I went to law school with a guy who's now the Attorney General of Minnesota. Right? This guy doesn't reflect values that I would say I support, right? Um, and I knew it then in law school, right? But that's where our, that's where we're going. Law is downstream from culture. Law doesn't change culture. Culture changes law. Right? And, right? So, right. Second is, the other challenge that we have in seeking prosperity of the city is that we default to wanting to separate ourselves into our own little worlds. Right? Like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, I don't like what's going on. I'm going to default to my own little world. The thing is that maybe we just see ourselves as citizens of heaven, right? Like, yeah, like, I'm done with this world. Like, I'm just going to live. Like, God wants me to just think about heaven, right? But we're living in this country, and God calls us to live as exiles. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for me to seek the prosperity of this country? of this state, of this community, especially when there is so much that, that appears to be against my God and against what I believe. We're living in a time of intense political division. We have to acknowledge, right? we have to be honest, right, and see, say that every political party is at some odds with the kingdom of God. No political party lines up fully with the kingdom of God. Each one may have some parts of it. In some way, our seeking the peace and prosperity of the city has to be something other than feeding and participating in deeply dividing conversations and harsh rhetoric on political issues. That cannot be the way we seek peace and prosperity for our city. The only thing we are told that is to be divisive is the gospel. But were, right? Like Romans 12, Paul writes, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's the gospel that should be divisive. And we need to be sharing that gospel. Fifthly, God has a future plan and promises to which he is committed to fulfill. For Israel, it is rooted in the promise that begin with Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. Jeremiah 29, 10-14, Jeremiah writes, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Right? So Jeremiah says, like, you're in exile, like, build houses, plant gardens, marry, right, have kids, grant, right, whatever. And he says, right, like, but don't forget the promises. Right? God has not forgotten his promises to you. You may be in exile. Obey God in exile because he's promised to return you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. There's the promises. Stand firm on those promises. Act in obedience out of standing on those promises. Jeremiah believed in the promises of God. I, I love this part of the story. In chapter 32, right, just three chapters later, Jerusalem is under siege. There's a war zone outside the walls. And Jeremiah is imprisoned by Zedekiah because he spoke out against him. His cousin, Hamel, approaches him and says, You want to buy my field? Like, okay, like, you're in prison. Like, nobody's doing much out there in the field, but I'll sell it to you, right? So, because of the family rights, Jeremiah had, right, had the right, like, right of first refusal, right, basically, to buy this field. He takes 17 shekels of silver and buys this land. He signs a deed in front of witnesses and has it sealed. He takes a clay jar, puts a deed in the clay jar, and has it sealed it so it would last long, and he has it buried in the field. Did he do that for himself? No. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, 32.15, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. That's how much Jeremiah believed in the promises of God that they would return. He buys a crazy piece of land in a war zone and buries the deed. He demonstrated his faithfulness and belief in God's promises. He knows he's headed to exile, but believing God's promises that his people return to the land and once again trade in property, he buys it. He didn't buy it for himself. He bought it for the people who would return in the future under the promises of God. Like, God doesn't want us to live controlled by fear. Like, fear, fear itself is not a bad thing, right? Fear is, is an emotion that warns us and gets us to respond, right? When we're fearful of what might happen or, or what we know will happen, politically and to our religious freedoms, right? It gives us that emotion of fear. But we have to challenge ourselves. Are our positions, actions, statements, and treatment of others based upon fear or God's promises? Like, fear is real, right? The, right? Afraid you're going to be persecuted as a Christian? Yeah, well, it's going to happen. Right? It has happened since Jesus, Peter, Paul, throughout church history. Afraid you're going to lose religious freedoms in the United States? Mm, yeah, right? History tells us it's likely to happen. Afraid this church may not be able to meet in this building someday? Yeah, likely to happen. Maybe not in my lifetime. Yours, right? But it's likely to happen. I sure don't want any of these things to happen. I want to push off... Oh, okay, I'll, I'll tell this little size. <laughs> so one of the one of the things I do with regard to religious freedoms is, particularly, uh, I mean, organizations that may may get challenged for what they're doing or for who they're hiring. Right? If they say, "Well, the Bible teaches us that um, any sex outside of marriage is wrong," so we don't hire. We only hire people who are faithful to God's word in that area. And they get sued, and they get challenged, and they and uh, and they they call me, 
expecting me to solve this problem. And one, one time I, I nearly broke down in eastern Colorado. Leslie and I were driving, and I was just, and I got a phone call. I don't know how I got reception in eastern Colorado. And it, it was this organization, uh, a religious ministry based in Oklahoma City, and they were being challenged, and he was just dumping on me all these issues. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Right? And I think that the, that, the weight, right, the feeling, the fear of what's going on, right? I don't want these things to happen. I want to push them off as far as possible, right? That's part of my life's work. But why do I want that? The ultimate why should be because I want the gospel to be shared and for people to come to repentance and faith in Jesus. Our life should not be controlled by fear of what man may do to us. It should be driven by being more concerned about God's purposes and what he says to us than what man says or can do to us. This is the fear the Lord thy God. In Matthew 10, right, this uh, fascinating passage, let me give a little context here, right? Jesus is sending out his disciples, right? And he says really nice things to them, encouraging things, you know, to them like, uh, um, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. I'll give you the words. Brother will be told Betray brother to death, a fatherless child, children will rebel against their parents. All men will hate you because of me. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities. Right? Do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed, they will not be disclosed. So he, he gives them in these encouraging words. And he says in Matthew 10 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God has a future plan and promises for those who have placed their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the hope. Our hope is not in Washington, D.C. Six. And this is our purpose, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our purpose is not to fight political battles. While those are important, we need to focus on our purposes of living out and sharing the good news of life in Jesus Christ. Right? That's what's so different in this world. I want to be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not my politics. But everyone, but everyone wants a part of Jesus. Right? Like, almost every political view now, or cultural issue, wants to say, Jesus is with us. Right? This is what Jesus would do, what we're doing. I had a professor in, uh, in uh, seminary, graduate school, by the name of Tony Evans. I don't know if you've ever heard him preach, uh, but he was a professor, and, and sometimes in class he would shift from professor mode into, like, black preacher mode, right? I remember this one day, right? He was talking about uh, um, this passage in Matthew 28, and he says, like, and I cannot do that voice, so I'll just say it this way, right? He said, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. He came to bring the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Culture is limiting Jesus to single dimensions or one dimension, right? Jesus wouldn't let people suffer, right? Jesus wants you to do what makes you happy. Jesus wouldn't let something bad happen. Jesus would do X about those coming across the border, right? God is this fascinating combination of attributes. Righteousness, judgment, Consequences, grace, 
mercy, peace. See, this is what makes God set apart and holy. He's a conjoining of these attributes. So he does have judgment and consequences and punishment for sin. His love is not letting everyone feel good. It's not about letting everyone feel good about themselves. His love is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross. Right? That's love. It involved death, burial, and resurrection to pay the penalty that we all deserve. But culture is driving a Jesus that's not based on the entire message of the Bible and a view of our own selves that is not based on the entire message of the Bible. We are not, deser- we are not deserving. Right? What are we deserving of? Judgment. We are deserving. We don't have a right to be free from consequences of sin. We are not somehow worthy within. We are not God's. The answer does not lie within us or come by being the best you. Have you taken an honest look in the mirror of your heart? If the answer that lies in your deceitful heart, we can see the result of that answer by how people are treating each other and acting for their own selfish interests today. Now I was so grieved by a statement I read on Instagram last week. It said, happiness is inside of us. Look inside for happiness. So, so, while happiness is a choice, right? You do not find true happiness within you. Have you looked at yourself recently? We're in need of help from outside of ourselves. The view of the answer being, the, the view that the answer is within us, right? Like, get back to your true inner self. You're basically good. Is not some new and profound spirituality. It's not a enlightened spirituality that is special to Richard Rohr or whoever, right? It's a distortion of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, who is a separate person who Jesus promises will dwell in us. We are not the God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a separate and unique person of the Trinity and God. And Jesus says he, the Holy Spirit, will dwell in those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ's work of redemption for us from our sin. Like, this thought that the answer is within you, that you are God, that true happiness is just becoming a true inner self, right? It's the oldest of lies. It's nothing new. It's the same lie that the serpent presented to Eve. Do what you want. And what you tell yourself is good, you can become like God. There's no one righteous in themselves. It's a lie to deceive and move people away from the Jesus of the Bible. We need, like, this is what we need to do. We need to show the multiple dimensions of God. The, the multiple dimensions of Jesus. He's not one thing, however you define love. Sorry for the air quotes. He is righteous. There is judgment. There is no good within us. We cannot save or help ourselves. It is the love of God as expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us and gives purpose and meaning to this life in exile. Our Creator knows us and designed us to worship Him. And apart from that primary purpose, your life will never be truly life. Lastly, the church is the body of Christ, given as a gift for the life of the world. The church maintains the hope of the not yet by living the kingdom now, by our actions in the world. We are to be the hope of God, scattered throughout the world by gathering and by unity around the message of Jesus Christ. The church is the lived memory of God's purposes in the world. The church is called to be the very embodiment of the hope of Christ. We are the body of Christ in the world. Let's be that in exile. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Christ's body was beaten and bruised and crucified for the life of the world. 
for your life so your life can have ultimate purpose and meaning. We need to share this. In John chapter 17, right, Jesus is praying to God and, and like absolutely fascinating prayer. I encourage you to go read John 17. And he, he, he writes, uh, sorry, verse 13. He says, I, right, Jesus, am coming to you now, right? Because Jesus is praying to God, right? I am coming to you, God, now. I, but I say these things while I am still in the world. So that they, speaking of his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word from Jeremiah and the challenges that the words of Jesus Christ bring to us to live in this world, to be your church, to live for the life of the world, to live with purpose and meaning and intention in a way that is not about our politics, but is about our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.